Yeah. Sorry, I've been on a liquid diet a little bit. I've not been feeling great. That's why I'm using the stool. That's... I'm going to use this very tall, skinny chair. Uh... Wow. I can already tell. I need to pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for your joy. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for even times of seriousness where we consider what you have said. In light of history and experiences, we know we always go back to your word. And so we pray, would you speak to our hearts and minds? Would you give me energy? Would you give me health right now? Would you give me the gift of teaching for your name's sake? These people love you. They want to know what you've said. Would you have mercy on me to be able to share with them? We love you because you first loved us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, on October 11th, the state of Mexico, which is the country of Mexico's largest populous state. It has about 17 million people. That's double, triple the size of many of the countries in Central America. Just a couple weeks ago, they overwhelmingly voted as a state to legally recognize what's referred to as same-sex marriage. It's the 29th state in the country of Mexico that has done so. There's only 32 States, so there's three states that are lagging behind in their opinion. In Canada, a father was arrested for not affirming his teenage daughter's decision to have a medical procedure, a medical operation done to change her physical appearance from looking like a female to looking more like a male. And just in the last couple of years, Some of our own legislators in America, uh, specifically some in Virginia, but they're not the only ones, proposed a bill to criminalize parents who do not affirm their LGBTQ children. They claim, and I quote, it is mental abuse, and so it needs to be against the law to undermine and take the authority away from parents. Sexual freedom is not new. Sexual freedom is, has always been a part of the world's pseudo-gospel, a false gospel. Sexual freedom is the good news of those that don't want to submit to God or his word. It is the good news that you can be what you want to be, you can do what you want to do, you can love who you want to love is how they say it. That is their idea of good news. And that's That's not been different. That's nothing new. It's been that way for thousands of years. We're going to read a letter that was written 2,000 years ago that specifically addresses this issue. However, what is new is for the first time in 2,000 years, the church is growing in its percentage of those who claim to be Christians. It has grown in the percentage of those Christians saying, we have we actually affirm LGBTQ. 
That's never been true of the church in 2,000 years except in the last few decades. There are some in the church that believe the false good news, believe the false narrative that God blesses same-sex unions and relationships and gender identities of whatever you feel like. And so there's a lot at stake. I'm reminded by a, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, really great author, great thinker, great writer. Um, he reminds me that there are always multiple people in the audience when you speak on such a topic. And it's unique because um, the audience is so varied, but the way that it's varied, it's varied toward the extremes. So in most situations, you have what's called the bell curve, where the extremes on the left and the right are a small percentage, and then it rises up, and most people are in the middle segment, and then it goes back down on the other extreme. However, when it, di- when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity, this is not true. Instead of one hump of a bell curve, it is two, and those two are on the extreme sides. So when you're talking about this issue, as a preacher, as I preach about this, I'm gonna preach from God's word no matter what. The hard part is realizing I have a wide variety of audience here. Some of you, and I'll, I'll say this is true, I, this has happened already, there are people within our own community that struggle with same-sex attraction, that have family members that are uh, out of the closet, as you say, and affirming of LGBTQ, and are them, they themselves are gay. And there are people in this church family that are wondering, how do we react and respond to them, and what do we do? And what if I'm struggling with same-sex attraction? And so I'm not able to speak to all the different audiences because that's impossible. If, if you came in my office and said, I'm dealing with same-sex attraction, I would give you a hug. I would tell you you're not alone. I would let you know that God has a lot more than just theological answers for you. He has hope and love and what Jesus said, an abundant life for every human being that turns to him, everyone. And that there would be, I would want to hear your story and get to know you and understand and living in a home where there was a, a gay couple. I, I, I can imagine the complexity of what do I do and how does this work and was I born this way and is this really what God wanted? Those are complicated issues that I would want to lovingly, gently walk through with you. But as a preacher, I'm not in a study with just one of you or two of you. This is a time for us to look at the scriptures and see what has God's word said. So I am particularly interested in not only preaching to the church, but in particular preaching to the young people and their parents. Part of the reason for that is because there are too many stories where Children, young adults in the church are leaving Christianity, leaving the faith because they move from their home, they move from this family context where we all kind of agree, which is changing more and more, but mostly. They move away and they talk to a professor that says, uh, yeah, your antiquated dinosaur, uh, horrible Christianity, tradition, religion that kills millions of people. Uh, have you ever heard of Roman fertility cults? And our kids are like, 
No. What are Roman fertility? Well, in Paul's day, when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1, he was dealing with the Greco-Roman world where there would be these cultural standards that he was specifically talking to. He wasn't saying homosexuality is wrong. And our kids go there and go, I've never heard that. And then they, they call back home or they go back home and they ask their parents, did you guys know that there's Roman fertility calls, that this isn't really talking? And parents say, no, I've never heard that. And they give the answer that just kills the younger generation. They say, don't worry about all that stuff. None of that stuff is true. Just trust me. Just trust our tradition. Well, tradition has lost its reputation. Tradition for the younger generations is racism and abuse and oppression. Now, I'm not saying it's really that. I'm just saying to the younger generations, that's their view on it. That's how they hear it. So when they go back home and hear that you haven't considered these things, and then they talk to a church leader, and that church leader also hasn't heard about these things, also hasn't done the tough work of reading through these things, they walk away not because they don't love their family or their church. They feel like the church is uneducated. They're ignorant. They don't know the real arguments. They haven't heard the history. So I want to preach to parents and young people in particular, but also to everyone else in the room, because I know that you young people aren't going to remember everything I say, or you old people. No one is going to remember everything I say. I don't remember everything I say. But I want you to be able to go into these groups, because when you get older and you get a phone and you're connected to the internet, you're, you're going to do things that you may not have been able to do when you were in your home, when you were at your private school, when you were in your, this bubble. You're not always going to be in the same cultural environment. When you leave this environment, and at some point you will, you are going to be bombarded, and I want you to remember, no, we talked about this. Our pastor did think about this. Our church did wrestle with this. We considered the world's arguments and we found them lacking. I don't remember what it is, but I'm gonna go ask my mom and dad. I'm gonna go back and ask my parent. And there's a different perspective when you go back home with insecurity versus interest. If you go back home feeling like your church isn't prepared to answer tough questions, it, that's 80 plus percent, that's the end of those kids staying in church. There are really good answers to what the world has to say about homosexuality. And just like the Bereans in the book of Acts, we do, we are capable of looking at the scriptures and saying, God really has said, and let me explain what that means. There is a good way in which we can understand homosexuality. Christians are thinkers and listeners. They do not rely solely on tradition. They rely on the scriptures. I know some people say the word is tradition, but the word is God's inspired, inerrant word. This is God's revelation to us, special, given to us, so that we can know what is true. So that's what I want to do with our time. Another week looking at it, I want to turn to God's word and see what he's preserved for us, specifically as it deals with homosexuality. So last week, we looked at Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. We looked at specific laws concerning homosexuality that not just address it, but condemn it. And we talked about there are really two main arguments against the Bible's uh, references on homosexuality. The two main arguments are, argument number one, and this is their strongest, argument number one is, I know the Bible mentions homosexuality, but 
It doesn't mean all homosexuality. It just talks about the bad homosexuality. It just refers to pederasty, uh, master-slave abuse, forced relationships. And I'm trying not to use all the words in these, but you guys get the idea. It's just used to talk about bad sexual interactions and experiences. It's not talking about homosexuality in general. This is also the foundation for what's called the cultural distance argument. What the world will try to say, actually the world doesn't care about the Bible, but what, quote, Christians who are pro-LGBTQ, and there's a rising number of them, they will use the cultural distance argument and they will say, their culture back then 2,000 years ago, of course Paul didn't really know about monogamous, faithful relationships committed to one another, really an image of intimacy like God may have intended. They don't know about those things. Their culture was so far away from that, they couldn't even have included those things. So you don't have to worry about those things because Paul really wasn't talking about all homosexuality. Well, we looked at Leviticus, and part of the argument is the word abomination in your, in your Bibles. And we saw how God's word consistently forbids all homosexuality, not just with pagan worship or some forced relationship as someone to add to Scripture. We looked at Leviticus 18 and saw how general sexual behavior was included in these lists of abomination, including adultery, incest, and bestiality. There is no good way, there is no moral way of committing adultery, incest, or bestiality, just like there is no good way to commit homosexuality. And we saw how that's a, there was holes in those arguments and they don't fit the culture. And then another argument is, well, that's the Bible, or Leviticus is the Old Testament. That law no longer applies. There's some false teachers out there that say, you know, Jesus fulfilled the law. We're no longer under the law. There's also a passage from Paul that says, hey, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. Specifically uses that phrase. So there are some that falsely teach there's not really an argument against it any longer because of what Jesus has done. But that can't be true if the New Testament condemns homosexuality. Does the New Testament, does God's New Testament church, does, did his apostles, did Jesus himself address homosexuality? The answer is yes. They did. And so that brings us to Romans chapter 1. Paul writes a letter to the Romans. In his letter, he begins with the gospel, and he explains how all people, everybody since the beginning of creation, all of them are guilty of unrighteousness, and all people are deserving of God's wrath. I'll, I'll read it. It's a, it's a longer passage, but it's important to read it. Romans 1.18, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Verses 18 to 20, people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They reject God in exchange uh, well, they don't exchange yet, but they're, they're people without excuse, verse 21. For though they know God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So people rejected God and created idols. Idols can only be made in the form of creation. They created their own idols. Verse 24, therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Now, it's interesting that as Paul is writing this, this is a long letter, he begins, and he's using the pronoun they for a reason, that people since the beginning have rejected God and they've created their own idols, and so God gave them over to their desires, what they wanted internally, and the first thing that's mentioned, what God gave human beings over to is sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What is the truth of God here? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever, amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God delivered them over. There's another God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with one another. I'm sorry, shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind. There is God's delivering them over again. God is giving people what they want. He's saying, if you want to reject me, if you want your own idols, you want your own way of doing, fine. I will let you live in that and cultivate that. He gives them over. He delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. When God gives you over to your desires, your passions, it because you rebel against him and you won't turn him like these people, you will only go further, move further away from God. So God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, his judgment on such things, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. According to Paul, gender dysphoria and same-sex sexual orientation, along with greed, envy, gossip, arrogance, disobedience to parents are all symptoms of the same problem. All of us as, as sinners have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we have worshiped the creation and not the creator. Now, Paul keeps using the word, the pronoun they in that. If you notice that in Romans chapter one, he does this starting in verse 18. After he talks about the gospel, the good news that everyone needs, he uses the word they. It gives the Jewish reader the first impression that, yeah, these aren't the Jews. We, we, we don't rebel against God and commit idolatry. But once he gets to chapter three, really when he finishes chapter two, 
we realize he was setting us up to see that we all have turned away. No one is righteous, no, not one, Gentile or Jew. So even though he's using the pronoun they, it's like he comes around the corner and says, and such were some of you. You were the same way, and if you judge the they, you are just judging yourself. Do you not know, Romans 2, 4, that it was God's kindness that leads you to repentance? So it is everybody that is in the same boat. We have all turned away, and none of us are righteous. All of these sins that are listed are part of our inherited fallen nature. Every human being in here was born with a fallen nature in a broken world. And homosexuality is only one expression of our fallen nature. So what can we learn about homosexuality from Romans chapter 1? Well, the main idea is that homosexuality is unnatural. In the text, in particular verses 26 and 27, Paul makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear, speaks about it clearly. Homosexuality is unnatural. It's not part of God's natural design for human beings. It says in verse 26, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations, or instead of the words sexual relations, you and your version might have one word, it's the word function, unnatural function, for natural function, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Now, some argue that verse 26 is speaking of inner sexual orientation. The argument from so-called Christians who affirm LGBTQ, what they say about this verse, even though clearly it sounds like it's speaking against homosexuality, what they say is, well, what Paul is really referring to are heterosexuals who are giving themselves over, even though they don't want that, they're giving themselves over to homosexuality. They're forcing themselves or others into that kind of interaction. And this is a main argument that Christian LGBTQ affirming people try to use, that this is what's unnatural, what's wrong here is that people aren't living according to their sexual orientation, their inner desire. But there are two problems with this that are, inherent, that are inherent with just Paul's words. The very words he uses makes that implausible. Number one, it is the physical function, not the desire, but the physical function that is called unnatural. Paul uses the word natural to refer to func- physical design. And then he uses the word unnatural, what is not natural, the opposite, to speak of the functional, practical design. Sexual relations may be translated as function in your Bible because it refers to the, and I'm, I'm trying to explain this with the best terms I can in a wide group. That word for sexual relations or functions, that Greek word with natural, is speaking about the natural physical complementarity that a male and female body was designed for, how they fit together. In other words, what is unnatural is the physical bodies of the same gender coming together. That is what's considered unnatural, not their inner desires. On the contrary, he actually speaks of the inner desire as being disgraceful. So if you look at verse 26, for this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. That word for passion talks about desire, will. It is the very definition of sexual orientation. 
So the second reason why that's a horrible argument and no one has taken that for thousands of years is because it is the very fact of their sexual orientation or passions that is what Paul calls disgraceful. Now, once you move past those arguments of what's natural and unnatural and realize that Paul is referring to just homosexual behavior, some will argue that the unnatural and shameless acts in verse 27 refer to pederasty, if you don't know what that is, you've got to look it up, master-slave abuse, forced interaction, and there's different ways of forcing this kind of interaction, or pagan worship, like temple worship, pagan idolatry. And this is what they have to say, because none of that is in Paul's letter. None of that is there. So it's an argument from silence. What some try to say is, well, this is really, what Paul was really thinking about was all these other things that he didn't write. And yeah, true, Paul wrote it like he was just talking about homosexuality, but really secretly, like the Da Vinci Code, there was this other thing really involved that you can't find in the Bible or in historical record or in any interpretation for thousands of years. That's what they'll say. What they say is if Paul would have been more careful with his words, he would have written it not to be condemning homosexual behavior in general, which is how he writes it. Now, there's so many reasons why this doesn't hold up, but I want to give you the main reasons historically why the church has not gone with this view because they've always held a traditional historical understanding of this. The main reason why that argument, which is the basic argument for all pro-Bible, pro-LGBTQ communities, this is their foundation. This is the only thing they can rely on because the Bible consistently speaks against homosexuality, condemns it every time. What they have to say is they have to speak from two places, a argument from silence saying, yeah, Paul didn't say any of these things, but he would have, and he just wrote it not in the best way. And they also say uh, that history has gotten it wrong like history has gotten slavery wrong, and there's a reason why that's not the same thing. So number one, it's historically inaccurate, unfounded, and an argument from silence. This whole basic, it's called the, dis, the cultural distance argument. It's historically inaccurate. And I want to use an argument from the other side of the aisle on purpose. Here's why. If you look up any Christian resource that we have on our website, any of the books that are over on the wall there, you'll find arguments, you'll find church history that affirms that Paul was talking about all homosexual behavior. But some of you young people, some of you are gonna face really intellectual type academics that say, no, you know, there's other people on the other side of the aisle that argue against this. Well, what they won't admit to you is other people that are on the other side of the aisle know that this is historically unfounded. So I'm gonna give you arguments from authors that are pro-LGBTQ and yet still admit uh, that this cultural argument is false. So don't go out and buy these books, but I want you to know this argument exists. Lewis Crompton, this is someone close, the late Lewis Crompton, who was the professor of English Emeritus at the University of Nebraska. Any of you guys from Nebraska? Yeah, this close, right. Yeah, well, before you're pro-Nebraska, hear this out. <laughs> Lewis Crompton, who was a, he's a very good writer. I say good on purpose. He wrote good. And uh, he was, he's amazing. He's a very smart, he was a very smart man. Except he did not believe in the Bible's the authoritative scripture. He was a gay man who was a pioneer in queer studies 
right next door to us. And in his 648-page book titled Homosexuality and Civilization, he makes it clear. Now, this is a guy that's pro-LGBTQ and admits that Romans is clearly speaking against all homosexual activity. He writes, Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to that interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well intended, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances, even monogamous, faithful, long-term committed relations of people of the same gender, in other words. Uh, the idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. This is a gay man admitting that that argument has never been given for 2,000 years and it shouldn't because it's historically inaccurate and unfounded. Paul didn't include any of those reasons in his letter. If Paul wanted to condemn pederasty, he could simply have used the Greek word, get this, it's called Pederasties, that's the Greek word. That's where we get the word from. He could have used that word, but he didn't. If he meant to condemn master, a master appeasing his sexual desire with his male slave, which did happen in their day and actually still happens today, it's just in a different context, then why write that they were, quote, inflamed in verse 27, inflamed in their lust for one another? This is not talking about an abusive relationship. This is mutually consenting relationship. It refers to two consenting adults. Another, one of the strongest reasons for understanding Romans 1 is just as it's plainly written, is because Paul mentions lesbianism. There's no record of lesbian, master-slave, uh, pedophilia, abusive relationships in the ancient world. And there's a lot in the ancient world. There's actually a professor, uh, last name Hubbard. He's not a Christian. He is not on the same aisle as us. He has over 500 pages put together of ancient Greek literature. It's online for free. You can download the PDF. I would encourage you not to. There's a lot of things in there you don't want to read. Uh, it's very pro-homosexual. But ancient Greek literature wrote about monogamous, faithful, lifetime lovers in their day. So Paul knew about this and still wrote it as if all homosexuality was condemned. So again, to argue from silence that Paul was really thinking about something else when he wrote Romans 1 would be dishonest with the history, his grammatical syntax, the very words that he's using, um, and thousands of years of Jewish and Christian interpretation of the Bible, which consistently says homosexuality is unnatural and a sin and condemned by God and not part of his creation and design. And I want you to know that the reason why I'm going to use scholarly work from people who don't agree with me is because I have, I have a whole bookshelf of books of people that admit that homosexuality is wrong. I want you to know that there are LGBTQ affirming scholars, Bible scholars and history scholars that will tell you, yeah, the Bible is clear. The Bible absolutely rejects and forbids 
homosexuality. It's to stress the point that even secular scholars who are LGBTQ affirming understand the historical and grammatical interpretation of the text. So I'm gonna give you some more references. These are people that are pro-LGBTQ but admit that this is not what the Bible affirms. Bernadette Bruton. She's a self-professed lesbian. She was the winner of the Lambda Literary Award for Best Lesbian Studies book in 1997 for her 1996 book, Love Between Women. This is what she wrote. I believe that Paul used the word exchange to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms, all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. This is a well-read, well-documented, award-winning lesbian who wrote about this, talking about the historical background of homosexual practice. Pim Pronk, he, he was a gay Dutch scholar who wrote the book Against Nature, Nature subtitle, Types of Moral Argumentation Regarding Homosexuality. This is what he writes. Wherever homosexual practice is mentioned in scripture, it is condemned. All the places it's mentioned. With reference to it, the New Testament adds no new arguments to those of the old. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. Dan Via, an LGBTQ affirming biblical scholar, now this is a self-proclaimed Christian who affirms LGBTQ, he does not affirm it based on the scripture. Now, he says that we don't need the Bible to understand ethics. So he's a very liberal in the very sense of the word, but he is a Bible scholar and, and reads and, and writes on the Bible. He argues against Robert Gagnon, who's my favorite Bible scholar uh, on this issue. He argues against him in a book called uh, Homosexuality in the Bible, Two Views. He says... Professor Gagnon and I are in substantial agreement that the biblical texts that deal specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. There is no argument to be made that the Bible is affirming of some kind of loving, monogamous, faithful, long-term relationship of homosexuality. That is historically, grammatically, scripturally unfounded, never been argued before because it's ridiculous. No true scholar believes that. However... There are guys like Matthew Vines, Justin Lee, James Brownson, a professor of Michigan. There are those that are trying to argue and grow this movement that, hey, let's just be affirming of it. It could be this other way, but it is unfounded. Homosexuality is unnatural and not part of God's design. Not just for the Jews under the Levitical law and not just for certain homosexual behavior, but all homosexual behavior is unnatural and condemned by God. I like how Sam Elber, you should get this book. This is one I do recommend. He concludes his thoughts on Romans 1. There are two authors that I wish you guys could read. Their names are Sam Elberry and Christopher Yuan. Christopher Yuan is a professor and doctor that is just brilliant. He came out of the gay uh, community, out of the gay lifestyle, and is a Christian that affirms that the Bible's clear on it, and he rejects his natural desires to be with men. But he still has same-sex attraction, but he knows it's not part of God's design. He's got a, a book that we have out on the shelf there. It's really good. It's a little bit longer than Sam Alberry's. Sam Alberry's is my favorite because you could read it in less than an hour, and people in your church could actually read it. It's easy to read. It goes through the different passages. It talks about how you interact with the homosexual community, those that are Christian, those that are not, what are the best practices to 
get into their lives, to love them. What does the Bible say about it? How does 1 Corinthians 5 tell us we can befriend and invite them over for dinner? So he goes through in a very quick order how to do it, uh, but he writes this. Speaking of Romans chapter one, this, Romans one, shows us why it is not true for those with same-sex attraction to say, but God made me this way. Paul's point in Romans one is that our nature, meaning our degrading passions, our desire, our sexual orientation, what we want to do, like all the list of sins in Romans chapter one that include disobedience to parents, our nature as we experience it is not natural as God intended it. That's what Paul means, it's unnatural. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. I mean, if you've ever walked into Brahms, you've been tempted with this. You want things that are not good for you. I do. You've done it. Don't lie. You've wanted that second scoop. You know it. Just because you want something doesn't mean that that something is truly good. In our fallen nature, we have wanted things that are not good for us. And I love this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. This is coming from a gay man who probably till the day he dies is attracted to men and knows that this is not God's design for him and he will not give in to his sexual desires. I do think you could be born a sinner because the Bible says it. You could be born with proclivities to do all kinds of wrong things, I think including homosexual, homosexuality. But just because in your fallen nature you desire those things, and you may feel like I was born this way, I am this way, all those things may be true, you were born a sinner. That doesn't mean it's part of God's design for you or it's what God would celebrate. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. So, so, so good. What, what a great summary of Romans 1. So why is this important? Why is your pastor spending multiple weeks on a controversial topic that most churches would not touch, especially today? There's even people in our own church that are wondering, why talk about this? Why do we choose, why is it so important that we not only teach on it, but we choose as a people what we believe and teach about homosexuality. An argument goes, wouldn't it be easier to just live and let live? Even if homosexuality is a sin, it's not the worst sin. And there are plenty of other sins listed in Romans chapter one that we can focus on. And being a father, I'd love to talk about disobedience to parents. Let's talk about that for three weeks. Why is it important? Well, we could talk about natural reasons, legitimate natural reasons that deal with the family unit and its impact on social life and economy and, and health. We could talk about the, the, the health of the sexual or homosexual community. We could talk about other natural reasons, but I'd rather focus on two that are important for the church and must always be important to the church. It's important for us to talk about this because if we don't, we undermine the authority of God's word. What we're saying is, even though the Bible is explicitly clear that this is a sin and not God's design for us, we don't need the authority of the Bible. Romans 3, 4 says, absolutely not. 
Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. God's word must remain forever our foundation of faith and practice and life and everything we believe and fight for and stand on. It is God's inspired and errant word that has the power that brings us to him. It is the truth that sets us free. And we don't know Jesus. We don't know this apart from the scriptures that have been handed down. We don't know the moral, ethical code of God. We don't know who God is apart from his holy scriptures. We need God's word to draw us to him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandment. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus condemned homosexuality when he spoke against porneia, which is a Greek word that is a junk drawer word for all of it, that it is destructive and will lead people away from the kingdom of God. His Jewish audience, him using that word specifically means all sexual immorality, which if you look at history, includes homosexual practice. The Bible consistently condemns homosexual practice in every instance in which it speaks about it. The Mosaic Law clearly forbids it. Paul's letters, three of them, two, two we'll read later on November 6th, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Timothy 1, he clearly condemns all homosexual practice. If we decide to back down from what God calls evil, we will find ourselves in the same position as those in Isaiah's day, which you do not want to go back to that day. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the prophet says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those. And second, if we don't teach this, if we do not stand on this, if we do not elevate God's word as truth, sharing the good truth in gentleness, with love, not beating people over, not being the other extreme, but if we do not teach on this, we remove repentance from the gospel message. We're telling one of the largest growing communities in our day that is anti-God, rebelling against him, you don't have to repent. In Jesus' message to the church in Thyatira, he said this very thing about that decision. This is, this is a letter from Jesus to one of his churches. This could be Grace Community Church. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate. That word tolerate is super important. Jesus wasn't saying, you do these things. You actively promote these things. He says you tolerate. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit... Sexual immorality, which in this day included homosexuality, adultery, uh, incest, which is specifically mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, all, the Leviticus 18 that speaks against these sexual behaviors, this is what sexual immorality means. Deceives, teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat, eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Do we not want to repent from this sexual immorality? Are we not willing to stand on God's word? Because Jesus' messages to the seven churches in that day were, listen, if you, well, five, six of them, if you do not 
turn away and repent. I will remove my lampstand from you. I will remove the Holy Spirit from you. You will not grow. You will not thrive. You will not thrive as a church family. I will allow your church to die if you do not repent from these sins. Because Jesus was so serious about sexual immorality, and so was the rest of the New Testament. If we don't talk about this, what we are saying is you don't have to repent to come to Christ. And that is not true. It undermines God's word and it undermines the gospel. The dialogue surrounding same-sex unions and gender dysphoria are not third-tier issues that we can ignore or agree to disagree on. The family, the church, the gospel, it hinges on how we treat these issues and I think just as importantly, how we treat one another with these issues. So what about treating, how do we treat homosexuals? Those that claim to be Christians and those that do not claim to be Christians. Do we attend gay weddings? Do we use gender-affirming pronouns? What do you say to a person who confides in you that they are experiencing same-sex attraction? Well, there's a lot of good resources that we have out there, and we're, we're out of time, but we have a Q&A. We are going to answer all of those questions during our Q&A and then open up the floor to answer some, and we're going to give you resources that answer a lot of those questions, and all we want is for you guys, if you can, submit your questions to us beforehand, because it's going to be hard to have like an open forum. Believe it or not, if you just hand mics to people and let them ask questions about gender and homosexuality, it gets crazy. So we're going to have a Q&A, we're going to take your questions, but we really want to take submitted questions. And on November 6th, I know it's one more week, and if some of you can't have your kids in here, I hope that you understand why that we're doing this and why it's important for us to know this and think about this. On November 6th, I'm hoping to conclude this series by looking at 1 Corinthians 1 and, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Because both of those passages give us a clear direction on how we interact in a pagan world and within the church as it deals with homosexuality. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. There, there are so many stories of people that grow up in church that when they leave the church bubble, when they're, you know, right now online communities are not your neighbors anymore. I'm sorry, communities are not your neighbors. You have online community groups. They think we've never talked about this and we've never considered this and we're ignorant and we don't know and they're insecure and they shy away from the church. But we, we want them to know we, we do consider this. You can talk to your pastor. There are legitimate arguments. We do understand the history. We're not ignorant. We do know what the Bible says and we do understand history and we want you to know we have considered these issues. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful to you that your word is so clear and understandable, and even with the arguments from false teachers out there, as attractive as some may be, and as much as I would want to open the door and affirm uh, people, we know we cannot affirm what you say is evil and destructive. Grow us in the knowledge of you Grow us in your grace. Help us to reach our community. Help us to train 
and instruct our kids on what is true. Help us to build a community that bears one another's burdens and loves one another. Such were some of us, but we've been washed and sanctified and justified, and that's all we want for our our loved ones and our neighbors. Would you help us to grow as a church in this? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.